every other part of our lives, we as consumers make choices based on what we think we need, and we look at value, and we make a cost calculation about how much we're willing to spend for X in return for Y. In healthcare, those kinds of, of questions don't even come up. In fact, it wasn't long ago, Sarah, when it was heresy to talk about the consumer and healthcare in the same sentence. And, hmm. and I would say that we as consumers didn't really help that situation. healthcare system is broken, and Rita Numeroff offered both her diagnosis of the problem on today's show and her prescription for how to fix it. I'm Sarah Fetsky. This is St. Louis on the Air. Proof of our broken state is everywhere these days. How else to explain the fact that many hospitals are currently overtaxed by COVID-19 patients? But when they cancel elective surgeries to accommodate that influx, they risk going broke. Or how about the fact that a huge number of patients schedule their elective surgeries for this time of year because they need to wait until they've met their deductible first. It's a complicated system rife with unintended consequences, and many of them seem to be coming home to roost during this pandemic. But it doesn't have to be this way, and my guest is here today to explain why. Rita Numeroff is president and co-founder of the St. Louis-based international healthcare consulting firm Numeroff & Associates. Her specialty is industries in transition, and she joins us today to share her knowledge. Rita, welcome. Thanks so much for uh, having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation, Sarah. So, Rita, it's an oft-quoted statistic, but I think it, it bears mentioning up front here. The U.S. spends more money on health care per capita than any other country. Are we getting a good result from that? I think it's a great question, and the short answer is absolutely no. This is a problem that's been going on for over 30 years, and most people don't have a real good handle on, on why it is and as individual consumers, what we can do about it. The irony is that the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which is the uh, government largest payer in in this country, Mm -hmm. has been trying to bend the so-called cost curve for over 30 years. And they haven't been successful. They've introduced a lot of regulation, more bureaucracy. And my contention is that it really is focused on the underlying business model behind the healthcare system. And until we address that, we're going to continue to see the kinds of problems that you've outlined. Hmm. So you published a book uh, in 2016. Uh, This is called Bringing Value to Healthcare, Practical Steps for Getting to a Market-Based Model. What was your argument in that? So in the book, we stepped back and took a look at what really is at the center of the problems that we've been seeing in healthcare. And our conclusion was that we have lacked essentially a consumer-centered model in healthcare that's really market-based. And so let me, let me unpack that because I, I think it's a lot of words and, and I want to step back and take a look at what that means. In every other part of our lives, we as consumers make choices based on what we think we need and we look at value and we make a cost calculation about how much we're willing to spend for X in return for Y. In healthcare, 
those kinds of, of questions don't even come up. In fact, it wasn't long ago, Sarah, when it was heresy to talk about the consumer and healthcare in the same sentence. And, hmm. and I would say that we as consumers didn't really help that situation. How, how how not? I mean, that seems like, I mean, it's kind of fascinating to think that that would be heresy. It's at the core of, of so many other businesses. Why is it so different in healthcare? Great, great question. So many of us didn't feel and still don't feel that we knew that much about it. Hmm. And as a result, we didn't feel we had standing or the right to talk about it. And a lot of the healthcare professionals that we were engaged with didn't think we knew that much about it either. Hmm. And some of them were quite happy keeping it that way. After all, the medical community has had the the language of science. It is technical. It is obscure to a lot of us. And when we're really sick, it's very scary. So many of us learned not to ask questions and basically do what we were told by the healthcare professionals we trusted. Hmm. And, And part of it, Sarah, is because most of us have had no idea what the healthcare services we consume have been costing us. Essentially, somebody else has been paying for them. Mm-hmm. Now, your prescription here is for a market-based system, and I want to get to that in a minute. But before we, we get into the details of how that would work, I want to uh, tackle sort of the big picture here, which is a lot of people have come to the conclusion that what we actually need is something like a single-payer system, where instead of having kind of this hodgepodge, where it's kind of part market, part not market, we should go fully down the road of what they have in, in some European countries and just let the government run the whole thing. Um, you're, you're looking at this from a different angle. Uh, What do you see as the advantage of going the market route instead? So I don't think that a single-payer system is going to get us any closer to what we need than what we've got. We do have a hodgepodge, but most of it is because we don't have a market-based system. So a lot of us get our healthcare services through our employer. If Mm -hmm. we have lost um, our, our employment, uh, because of the pandemic, then we've also lost our health care coverage at the very time when many of us need it most and need that security. Mm-hmm. There are other options through the exchanges that were set up 10 years ago through the ACA. But even the ACA established the model based on an antiquated business model. Mm-hmm. So historically, what's happened is that healthcare systems have been paid we're doing more and more stuff, providing more and more services, and they get paid when they have us as patients in their institutions. And for many years, the, um, the boardrooms were focused on heads and bets, essentially taking a look at the volume of services like hip and knee replacement, cardiac difficulty that needed to be addressed within the setting of a healthcare. Uh, large healthcare system, bricks and mortar, and not thinking about this from a continuum of care perspective, not thinking about it in terms of the idea that hospitals, Sarah, were never meant to be destinations of choice. We don't look forward to going to hospitals. We want to avoid being in the hospital. But the way in which we have created, quite frankly, perverse incentives is to keep our hospitals and the growth of these large institutions propped up by bringing in more and more services and keeping as much as we can within the bricks and mortar. Technology has allowed care to be delivered in 
much less expensive, more accessible, convenient settings, including in the home. Who would have thought years ago that people could get dialysis treatment in their kitchens? Mm -hmm. So the technology has allowed uh, real innovation and care to be delivered closer to the patient-consumer in ways that weren't thought about before. But the payment system isn't consistent with that. And so this payment system, we're still locked into this payment system. How is that playing out now in this pandemic and and sort of exacerbating some of the problems of of having a a pandemic? Great, great question. So for those healthcare systems that have embraced an alternative payment model and have moved more to what's called a capitated model, where they get a certain amount uh, on a, on a per, per employee or per member per month basis, they've had a more predictable revenue stream. They were quick to embrace telehealth and be able to engage their, their patient consumers uh, either when in the workplace, if they were still there, or in their home and other places where uh, it was a lot more convenient. And most hospitals and the, the surrounding uh, supports whether it's outpatient systems and so forth, that were part of those, uh, those systems, were essentially shut down to make room for the possibility of COVID-19 patients being treated by an already pressed staff. Mm-hmm. And so if the elective surgeries weren't there, then guess what happens to the business opportunity, the business model of these institutions? It plummets. Mm-hmm. So most healthcare executives who didn't want to move into a capitated, more predictable revenue model, were basically saying, we don't want to do this because we're afraid of taking on the risk. And what they've learned since March of this year is that the underlying financial mechanisms associated with fee-for-service are associated with infinite risk, something that they'd never thought of before. Hmm. So do you think this has been a wake-up call in a good way, in a way that might lead to some changes that, that need to be made? I think that's a great question, and my expectation is that it will be a wake-up call for many, not all. And as the country sees more and more of these large healthcare systems coming to recognize that there is an alternative way, it is one that consumers are going to value. It's more cost-effective for them. It creates a better experience for their employees, because don't forget, we're furloughing tons of um of healthcare workers at the same time that we're experiencing shortages. Mm-hmm. That by itself should tell us there is something wrong with the way in which we're delivering healthcare services. And so I, I am very optimistic that this, in fact, will be a wake up call. And I think it would be naive to expect it's just going to be a flip of the light switch. It is difficult to conceptualize a different model and put in place the infrastructure that's going to be needed to get there. But it is possible, and there are organizations that are doing that, and they are proving that with these kinds of investments, consumers are happier, they're thriving where some of their counterparts are not. My guest today is Rita Numeroff. She's the president and co-founder of the St. Louis-based consulting firm Numeroff & Associates. We're talking about the business of healthcare, how it's broken, how we might be able to fix it. You say there are organizations that are doing this, that they have implemented these alternative payment models, and so they're not uh, caught in such terrible places right now in this pandemic. Give us an example of somebody who's doing this and, and making it work. 
Well, there are examples around the country from direct uh, primary care where you've got groups of physicians who are coming together who are taking on accountability for care across the continuum and going at risk. And so there are many of them um, that, that really have done an excellent job in proving this out. Historically, Kaiser Permanente has taken on this model. It was their lifeblood. They actually moved to one that was more typical fee-for-service base. And for the part of the organization that has moved in that fee-for-service direction, they've had the same kinds of problems that their counterparts around the country have. Um, Intermountain, which is uh, an organization that is also talked about quite a bit, is another example of an organization, but part of it has taken on this new approach. And the other part of it, which is still the dominant uh, component of um, of its revenue base, is in fee-for-service, and that's been shut down just like its counterparts have experienced in other parts of, of the country. Mm. And so they're struggling with how do you integrate these two vastly different models to create a fundamentally different approach that's going to be better for consumers and better for the economy. You've used the, the phrase continuum of care a few times here. What, how does that look in reality if, if, if a place is working off that model as opposed to the other model? So if you think about... Um, uh, yourself as a, as, a, as a patient consumer, every one of us brings a, a certain set of conditions, life experiences, genetic material, and so forth. And what we want to do is engage with a healthcare system that's going to help us remain healthy, sure. and maximize, okay, maximize uh, what it is that we have available to us, and help us make, quite frankly, better better health choices, better behavioral choices. And ironically, we are a major driver of cost to the system. And Hmm. oftentimes, we don't even think about it. And so to the extent that we think about ourselves as getting the right exercise and eating properly, getting the right sleep, managing stress, all the things you think about and are hard for us as individuals to do, those are things that are going to prevent difficulties from from arising or delay those things that are genetically predisposed for us to get. And so that is, is focused on earlier prevention when we get an issue, making sure that it's appropriately diagnosed and effectively treated in the least expensive, most convenient, most appropriate place. And with technology coming in, that often is going to be in the comfort of our homes or our offices for those of us who have gone back to offices. Hmm. And, and so what we want to do is maintain that positive journey and, and look at where we may need to get more specialized interventions, again, in the most cost-effective, convenient way. And it's often not in the traditional bricks and mortar of the healthcare system. But that's where, historically, the money has been made in these organizations, and we as a country can't afford to continue to support that. And these institutions that we so desperately need are not going to be viable unless we change the model. Hmm. So, so many of these rural hospitals do seem to be in trouble, and there's a lot of talk about how they need a, a federal bailout. Um, is that the right step here to try to save these hospitals, or is that part of what needs to be dismantled? 
I think it's part of what needs to be dismantled. I think it's very concerning when we see these rural um, institutions, which have been a lifeblood for people in those communities, not having access to care. We're seeing alternatives cropping up in urgent care centers, and also Walmart bringing in uh, organizations that can be helpful to providing care in the community, including clinics within Walmart settings. I think we're going to see more of that going forward. I think it is part of the problem. I think telehealth creates a potential solution in terms of giving really sophisticated care on a remote basis, on a virtual basis to people who live in remote areas. So I don't think it's propping up institutions that, quite frankly, may not have the experience base, uh, for example, to do orthopedic surgery in a local environment because they don't have that much call for it. Mm -hmm. And if you don't do a lot of it in a given community, you're not going to be as good at it as some place that does this as a specialty over and over and over again. So I think that a one-size-fits-all solution is not going to be helpful. I think that our rural communities deserve better And we need to think about it in terms of a 21st century approach rather than thinking about a continuation of what worked very well, perhaps in the 1970s and 80s. Hmm. So this is all good advice for for institutions and I guess also for the government as it's thinking about its role in all this. What about us as individuals? Is there anything we can do right now that makes this system, that will start to make this system work better for us? I think there are a lot of things that that we can be doing. I think that we need to become better informed and more engaged in asking questions regardless of where we're getting care. Why am I getting this test? Why am I getting this medication? Where should I get the test? If I need one, that's going to be most convenient, most cost-effective. And by the way, where is the data that tells me who does a better job. Hmm. Because the assumption in the absence of data, Sarah, is that all care is created equal, and it's not. And we need to demand that our healthcare delivery organizations, regardless of where they are, regardless of whether they're part of a large system or not, give us the kind of information that we're accustomed to seeing on a regular basis in every other part of our lives. Interestingly, the only part of healthcare that historically has operated like the rest of our economy is in the area of LASIK surgery and cosmetic dermatology. Hmm. It's because we've paid for this out of pocket. That's interesting. So people are incentivized to shop around on that, um, and it seems like a lot of people are really happy with the results they get from it. Exactly. Hmm. Well, there's some. This is just a different way to think about healthcare than I think a lot of us think about. And as you say, this time is ripe for change. Um, and so this is something that it sounds like your clients are going to need a lot of advice as they navigate this. And for the rest of us, we can maybe start getting our heads around what is to come. It sounds like ready or not, big changes are going to be coming. Absolutely. I think that consumers' eyes and minds have been opened. And as a result, it's becoming imperative that healthcare executives and the general public let go of the notion that someday soon all is going to return to normal. I don't think this is a temporary blip. I think it is an opportunity. And maybe it's becoming the moment we'll all remember as the one that changed American healthcare as we've known it for the better. Hmm. Well, that's an optimistic note to end on. So, Rita Numeroff, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. 
My pleasure, Sarah. Have a good rest of the day. And Rita um, has founded the firm Numeroff and Associates. That's an international healthcare uh, consulting company. She's also the author of Bringing Value to Healthcare Practical Steps for Getting to a Market Based Model. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.